Well, we are back together for worship again this morning, and we are continuing back into the letter of Ephesians. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll be picking up in verse 15 in just a minute. Last month, in the month of September, we began making our way through the beginning of this letter. And we looked at the first 14 verses, the opening or the introduction. And if if you remember back to those passages and those messages, Paul is waxing eloquent for, for verse after verse, phrase after phrase, as he describes a new reality God has created. As he describes a new family God has created in Christ. There's that phrase that comes back again and again. This is what God has done in Christ. But most of those first 14 verses describe this this triune work of God, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, kind of working behind the scenes or in hidden places. Paul describes in those verses God's pouring out blessings in the heavenly realms, in in spiritual dimensions. And all that talk of, of sort of the heavenly work and power of God can feel a little abstract sometimes to us. I know in our Wednesday night small group that meets at our house, we've been sort of wrestling with, well, how do we take all of that great language and and begin to see how it matters for us in the here and now? And one of the things that I think is helpful for us in order to to kind of lay hold of what this letter is about is to go back and remember who Paul is sending this letter to and why. What's our context? And so as you open your Bible to Ephesians this morning, what's printed there is Paul's letter. It's Paul's prayer to a cluster of baby churches that were planted in and around the city of Ephesus in the middle of the first century A.D. And you could envision Paul writing this letter. It's a a letter to this, this regional group of God's people And he's writing from his prison cell. It's a time of imprisonment for Paul. And he's writing to the Ephesians, this this group of people who are living in one of the darkest places in the ancient world. If we go back and we sort of dig around in first century sources, if we read the book of Acts, we look in other places, we discover that Ephesus was a city where paganism where sorcery, where cursing others, where the the sort of dark powers of our world were celebrated. It was a a part of the culture of that city and region. It's a place that, from the very beginning, when Paul begins to minister there, he provokes a hostile response, even demonic attack Paul wrestles with in his early ministry in Ephesus. And we can imagine then for the first many years, maybe several decades or or hundreds of years, the light and the hope of the gospel in that place must have felt always on the verge of being extinguished, snuffed out by this pervasive sense of spiritual darkness. Last week, Pastor Glenn spoke to us about the the presence of God, the comfort of God, the strength of God in the midst of darkness and 
grief and even death. And he, he used a passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians. And that's a letter where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in a different place, but he's just come from this difficult, struggling time of ministry in Ephesus and in the province of Asia surrounding Ephesus. And this is what Paul says there at the beginning of that letter. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. And here he's describing Ephesus in the surrounding region. We were under great pressure there, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So Paul, looking back on what's probably a few years in Ephesus and in Asia, summarizes that time by saying it was a time of great trouble. It was like walking through and under a death sentence. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright describes Paul's tone in 2 Corinthians as, as a letter that sounds like it's being dragged out of Paul through a filter of darkness and pain. This was probably the, the most difficult few years of Paul's life. Paul's time in Ephesus leaves him sort of limping through this fog of, of heaviness and exhaustion and grief. Paul will say that that season of his life felt like he was being pressed down and crushed and attacked at his very core. But in the middle of that struggle, Paul strikes upon something deeper. Something that's hidden in that darkness, in that struggle. Paul says in the next verse here, verse 9, that Paul discovered a God who dwells among the death and the darkness in order to practice resurrection for us. Paul says he discovered a God who raises the dead. And again, N.T. Wright says of that season of his ministry, it was like Paul being a plant who is rooted in a, in a season in a harsh winter time. And that season of his life forced him to put his roots deeper than he had gone before. Deeper down into the meaning of Jesus and in particularly the meaning of Jesus' death and then resurrection. And as Paul digs into that reality, he begins to see that even in the darkness, there is something else there. There's the reality of heaven at work. And so as he picks up his pen, as he begins to write this letter to the, the churches in and around Ephesus to share with them the discovery that he's made. That God is a light, that God is a resurrecting power in the presence of dark places. And he writes this letter in order to focus their eyes on a spectrum of hidden reality, heavenly reality. But Paul says God is turning loose the power of Christ's death and resurrection in and onto and through people of God, people who are in Jesus Christ. 
So that's a bit of background as we pick up verse 15 in this letter. That's who and what Paul is writing into. If you would turn with me to Ephesians 1, verse 15, let me pray for us as we open God's word again this morning. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes now. Open the eyes of our hearts. Quicken our spirits. Unstop our ears. We may hear your word. We may know power and the life and the work of your spirit as we consider what you have done in Christ Jesus. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. Okay, remember, it's these people in this great and, and heavy place of darkness. Not stop giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Verse 15 begins with this phrase, for this reason. That tells us that Paul is looking back to what he's just said. Looking back on this super long sentence that started in verse 3 and went down to verse 14. Where Paul has outlined and enumerated all of the heavenly blessings God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Paul speaks there about the gift of adoption, the gift of redemption, the gift of inheritance... The gift of of a new people, Jew and Gentile, that God has surprisingly made into a people now in Ephesus. Paul's been rejoicing in all that God has done. But now, as he goes into verse 15, he says it's not enough just to talk about those things. It's not enough for us just to even think about those realities. What Paul wants is for his friends in Ephesus to experience those realities. To know what it means for them to break into their earthly struggle. And so in verses 17 through 18, Paul prays for something very specific. He says, I keep asking that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He prays that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened. Out of all the things Paul could pray for this group of people, this is at the top of his list. This is his first priority. Paul prays for a kind of heavenly eyesight. He prays that they would have eyes to see heaven's power working here on the earth. That God would fashion a kind of prescription lens for their heart. So that when they see their world, they could see where Christ is reordering that reality. Where he's remaking their culture. Where he's renewing their community. 
where he's resurrecting these people even in their struggles and even in their sufferings. But the the problem is to our untrained eyes, to our untrained hearts, right? The reality of heaven, the reality of what God has done in Jesus Christ, too often seems hidden to us. So that's why Paul prays here. The immensity of, of who God is and what he's done and what he's doing now is kind of like the spectrum of of electromagnetic radiation or light in our world. There's this incredible power in our world that's working all the time in and through these wavelengths of light. But what we can see of that work is is just a tiny fraction on that spectrum. We see colors. We see red, green, blue. We see down to violet. And then eventually that work of light, that power of light becomes invisible to us. We see colors, but we don't see radio waves. We don't see UV rays. We don't see X-rays. But they are still very real, very powerful nonetheless. But in order for us to capture, to understand those realities, we have to rely upon other tools, other technologies to grasp what they're doing. So Paul says here, in order for us to see what God is up to in our world, we too need help. We need assistance. We need the work of his spirit in us. What he calls in verse 17, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The spirit who takes the mysteries of God, what he's done in Christ in the heavenly realm, and he relays them to us through impressions and through convictions and through the revelation of his word. So that, Paul says, we might know who God is. We might know him better. And so as we turn then to the the second half of this passage, verses 18 through 23, Paul prays that the Spirit might help us see three things, three realities that are hidden to our plain sight, to, to the plain meditations of our hearts. Three heavenly realities that are hidden to us, but are still very real. So I need a volunteer this morning to help me out. Maybe one of our kids. Somebody come up here and help me. Who can help me? JJ, can you do? Oh, JJ or Weston. Weston, you want to help me with the first one? We've got a few of these. Paul has these realities that are hidden. He says they're the work of heaven coming down to the earth. So I want you to tell me, Weston, you want to come around this way? Can you see anything here? No. This is, this is the reality of heaven working in our world. Does it look like much? It's like an empty sheet of paper. All right, I want you to help me out now. If I shine this little light, do you see anything? Do you see some letters? What letters do you see? H-O-P-E. Can you trace those letters for me? Two more to go. All right. Do you know what H O P E spells? 
spells hope. Paul says that's the first reality of heaven. Christ is working in the earth. Thank you. You want to go back to your seat? Look with me at verse 18. This is the first thing Paul prays we might see. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So Paul says, his longing is for the the eyes of our hearts to begin to see. And in particular, he says, I want you to see, I want you to feel, I want you to trust and live from a deep sense of hope. What does it mean for us to have hope? Let me give you a really simple definition of what I think Paul envisions hope. When he uses this word throughout the New Testament. Typically, when, when Paul talks about hope... It's this promise that what God has done in Jesus Christ, he has promised to do in us. Say that again. Hope at its very core is a promise that God has made. That what he has done in Christ, he has promised to do in us. We extrapolate that a bit. That means that God will redeem us. That God will make us righteous. That God will even resurrect us like he has done for his own son. And so we have hope, Paul says, because we are in Christ. Hope is our trust in this promise that, that heaven will do unto us what it has done unto Jesus' son. Now that is what hope looks like. But if you and I have ever set out to accomplish those things on our own, to make ourselves righteous, to try to redeem our own situation, often we'll quickly run into the opposite of hope. We'll run into despair. And maybe that's where you're at today. Maybe you're feeling like you've messed things up. Maybe you feel like you're powerless to fix yourself. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by a problem or situation that surrounds you. Paul says, into that reality, to set your eyes on the hope into which God has called you in Christ Jesus. Paul says, God has pledged all of his energy, all of his purposes, to make of you his glorious inheritance, to make you his holy people. Paul says this is the promise, this is the future of every person who is in Christ. God has pledged it will be so. And so Paul prays that the hope of heaven might change the way we see and we live in reality today, the way we live now. So since this is Paul's prayer, I want to give you just a few minutes few moments, I should say, to let this wash over you. I just invite you to close your eyes and to ask the Lord, where do I need hope? Where do I need the certainty of his promise to do in me what he has done in Christ today? Just take a minute to invite the Spirit to strengthen your ability to see and trust that hope.
Lord, we thank you for the certainty of your promise. Thank you that there is hope in every circumstance and situation. Lord, would you deepen our trust, deepen our ability to see into that hope today. Amen. All right, I need another volunteer, somebody else to come up. Who else do we have? Oh, okay. How about back here? Yep. Can you come up and help me? Do I have my marker? Did I leave it down there? Oh, maybe it's down there. All right. So Paul prays that we might be able to see hope. He talks about another hidden reality. Do you see anything on that paper? No, it doesn't look like much, does it? Now I want you to tell me if you can see anything. Do you see some letters? You want to trace those for me? P. O. W. E. What's that last letter? Can you read that word? What is that? Power. Very good. Thank you. You can go on back. Paul says that the second reality of heaven at work in our world that's been hidden to us is the power of God. Look at verses 19 and 20. Oh, got ahead of myself here. Paul says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Again, this is second half of a sentence, I pray that you might know the hope that he's called you into, and I pray that the eyes of your heart might see his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul prays here that we might see heaven's power thinking back this week to when I was a kid and there was a Nintendo game that almost everybody seemed to own called Contra. Anybody ever remember playing this game? Brian is the only Nintendo game player in our congregation. Contra was this game where you were you know, asked to control these commandos running through jungles and, and sort of fortresses. And it was full of hundreds of bad guys shooting at you constantly. And it had kind of a reputation of being a game that was almost impossible to beat. It was just too hard. So you sort of had to creep your way through the game, always worried about the the next guy that was going to pop out and shoot at you. But after the game had been out for a little while, there was a secret that sort of started spreading around the neighborhood. And it turned out if you took your game controller at the beginning of the game and you punched in this secret code, suddenly your player was given... 30 additional lives in the game. And your friend could play with you and they could do the same thing and they would have 30 additional lives. So now you had 60 lives to beat the game with. Once that code was punched in, your your whole outlook in playing the game changed. Instead of always wondering around what was around the corner, you just weren't afraid of anything anymore. You would just run through the game kind of at will. No matter how hostile things got, No matter how many guys were shooting at you, you just kind of had this great sense of confidence, right? That you could be raised from the dead literally 30 consecutive times. 
you hit that code, right, you had a power that you no longer had to fear death in that game, at least. Here Paul prays that our hope in Christ might also cause us to no longer fear death. And this is how Paul describes power. He says it's a power that can literally raise us from death. Paul says, consider what God has done. Consider that in Christ Jesus, God finds Christ in the clutches of death itself, entombed. And then God not only resuscitates, not only resurrects his body from death, but then he lifts his crucified and dead body, resurrects it, and he causes it to ascend into the glories of heaven. So that now his son Jesus is not in the tomb, but sits at his right hand in heavenly power. Paul says, that same power is now at work in you. That same power is now at work in us, in the church. That is the power that fills the people of God. So if we're going to try to define power, it's very similar to the way Paul defines hope. Power is the, not just the promise that God will do what he has done in Christ to us, but that he is able to do it. He has strength. He has might. He is able to exert himself to accomplish those things. Imagine that. That God has power to make you like Christ in every respect. Now notice, Paul doesn't say we're not going to endure conflict. Paul doesn't say we have power so we no longer face the darkness. Remember, this letter is written to a group of his friends in one of the darkest places he's ever spent time. But he says that in that darkness, in the grip of death, in your weakness, that is where God is unleashing this power. So that, like he said in 2 Corinthians, we would not rely on ourselves. We would rely on the God who raises the dead. So I want to take just another moment, and I want you in the eyes of your heart, as Paul says, to imagine what is it like? How does that change things if you know that the power of Jesus Christ is at work in you? The power that raised him from death. The power that redeemed his life. Take a minute to envision, to pray that the Spirit would, would apply that promise and that power to you today. Lord, we thank you for the power of heaven that is on, on offer to us, made available to us in Christ. Amen. All right, we have one third reality that I want us to imagine this morning with Paul. I need one last volunteer. How about JJ and Nora? Can you come up and help me out? Tag team? You guys both come up? We have somebody hiding. This one's a little trickier. No? Okay. I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you be the flashlight person, okay? Does that look like much to you? All right, can you help shine that on there? And I'm going to see if there's anything hidden under there. Let's see. 
Can you shine it again? Do you see some lines? How about over here? What do you see? Oh, how about down here? What does that look like? It looks like a crown. Why do you think there's a crown? Who wears crowns? Kings and queens, yeah. You want to give me that light back? Thank you for your help. You can go on back. The final reality that Paul wants us to see is that through the hope and through the power God has unleashed in Christ Jesus, we now have a new king. We now have a new reigning power. Verses 21 and 22 and 23. For God seated Christ through his great power far above all rule and all authority, above every power and dominion, above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul knows that our world is full of powers. It's full of individuals and groups that are laying claim to importance and prestige and control and influence. And and in this letter of, of Paul to the Ephesians, he will describe this struggle between the people of God and the powers of this earth. And he names... Visible powers, right? There are institutions, there are hierarchies, there are nation states, there are corporations, there are political powers. We can see the the struggle between those powers in our world today. You could see it in the news this past week. Paul says there are also hidden powers. There are forces we cannot see, forces of darkness, strongholds in the spiritual realm. Paul will say. But in just a few verses, Paul here unmasks all of those powers. And he says that no matter how alluring, no matter how important, no matter how powerful those things now seem, whether it was Caesar or the goddess Artemis in Ephesus, or whether it's the political factions and parties of our own time, Paul says all of those things may appear to have power, but among the people of God there is only one king who is now in ascendancy. He says there is one who is far above all rule, all authority, all power. He says that God has placed everything under his feet. Both now in this age and forever, right, in the age Paul wants us to know who our Lord is, who our King is, where true power rests, even in struggle, even in suffering, even in darkness. Jesus is the Lord. Look at what he says at the end of this passage. He says that he's been placed over all things, but he has chosen to join us into his own body. As the head of the church, He has called us 
to be his people, to participate in who he is. And he promises to fill us, to make us his own.